Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. Hello, I'm Nancy. And I'm Pete. This week, we'll be taking a walk down memory lane and see how some of the assistive technologies for the visually impaired have changed over the years. In particular, we'll discuss the aids and technologies that Pete used starting as a young boy in the 1950s and then as a student, as a professional, and now as a retiree, and what accommodations he needed to make as his vision declined. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip is stay on top of what adaptive aids are available or on the horizon because your needs may change with time. And I found that to be very important and very enabling in my life. You know, if you keep track of what technologies and what aids are available to do different tasks, you can pick and choose the best aid or technology or device for the task that you want to perform. And as our son learned from his kindergarten teacher, never say you can't. Always say you'll try. There always seems to be a way to do what you want to do if you're aware of the resources that are available to you. And one of my philosophies is that if you have a disability, it may not make anything easier, but it doesn't have to make everything impossible, that there's often another way of doing things so that you'll be able to achieve whatever it is you're trying to do, even if you have to do it a little bit differently. Let's start by meeting Pete's younger self. Now, Pete, when you were born, you had congenital glaucoma, and so your vision was never very good. As an infant and toddler, that didn't really make a big difference. But when you started first grade, all of a sudden, your low vision meant you needed to do things a little differently, right? Well, yeah. I was living in New York City in the Bronx, and there was a public school right across the street from me. And the intent was that I would go to the public school just along with, uh, you know, all of our sighted friends. But it turned out that I couldn't see the blackboard from even the front row of the classroom. So someone suggested that since you live in New York, there is a school for the blind and they do a good job there. And someone suggested to my mom, that's where you should send your son. So I went to the Lavelle School for the Blind from first until fifth grades. And in keeping with our tip that you never know what adaptive aids you're going to need to use later, at the School for the Blind, you learn to read and write in Braille, but on the side, your mom taught you to read and write and print. But all of that Braille education came in really handy later in your life. And we'll talk about how learning Braille as a child came in useful later on. But you're right. When I was young, I almost didn't consider myself blind, except for the fact that I went to a school for the blind. That's kind of ironic. I used to be able to see enough to be able to hold a print book several inches from my nose and read it that way. And so for me, although they taught me Braille in the school for the blind, we had a public library right down the block from us. And I was an avid reader at the time. They didn't have that many books in our Braille library at school. So I did all of my reading from the public library right down the block from us. So then your family moved to the suburbs. And what happened then? 
Well, when we moved out to Long Island, which was about 50 miles away from New York City, I didn't want to live at the school for the blind. And there weren't that many schools for the blind around back then. So we figured we would just try it out in public school and see how it worked. At Lavelle School for the Blind, it didn't matter that you couldn't read the blackboard because the teachers didn't use the blackboard because the whole point was that the students couldn't see it. But when you moved to the public school, that became an issue. How did you solve that? Well, and that became one of the first special adaptive aids that I took advantage of. It turned out that people made a little monocular device. It was actually a telescope, but it was folded up in a little form factor that it would fit into the palm of your hand. And I could sit almost anywhere in the classroom and read the blackboard by using that little monocular object. It magnified everything on the blackboard. It was a little bit more difficult, and it made me feel awkward at times, but it worked. And you didn't have any technical aids to help you with exams or homework assignments, did you? Well, I did not. When I read printed material, like I said, I just stuck my nose very close to the book or piece of paper. And since my mom had taught me how to read and write print, that worked out. And that's what I used through most of public school. The other accommodation I did make use of in public school was using large print exams. Although I generally took the normal exams that the teachers passed out in classes for national exams like the SATs to get into college and the GREs to get into graduate school, those were available in large print. And so I did use large print exams for those exams. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. This week's focus topic is the low vision tools that Pete used as a student and the blindness tools he went on to use as a professional. So now, when you went to college, you still had your monocular, but your vision wasn't getting any better. How did you deal with all of the visual material in college? Well, in fact... Towards the end of college is when things started to change for me. I had more and more trouble with my eyesight. It wasn't very reliable. There were some days or evenings I just couldn't read at all. And so I had to be very careful about doing my homework and other chores when my eyesight was cooperative. Uh, the monocular helped in reading the blackboard. You know, I'd ask professors to verbalize things, or if they wrote a lot of information on the blackboard, sometimes they would give me a copy of it because it was easier for me to read that way. But the situation dramatically changed just before I went to graduate school. I had a fellowship to go to graduate school, but my eyes, as I said, hadn't been cooperating. And so I had some surgery the summer before graduate school that actually left me totally blind. And that was when you first started using a white cane. Well, right. That summer, I decided, look, I have this fellowship to go to graduate school. I have to relearn some of the Braille skills that I had learned at the Lavelle School for the Blind. And I also had to learn to use a cane, which I had never used before. I probably should have because I couldn't see that well crossing streets and navigating around large places. And I've heard several stories where you fortunately landed on your feet at the bottom of a flight of stairs. Sometimes that even happened with my cane when I was trucking along too quickly across campus. Oh, boy. <laughs> but anyway, I took that summer and I reacquainted myself with Braille. Since I was going to graduate school in physics, 
I figured I ought to learn Braille math. It turns out no one knew anything about it. So they collected a bunch of Braille manuals for me and said, here, read these. And I also prepared for graduate school by finding out ahead of time what books they were going to use in some of my courses and ordering those books from what was then Recording for the Blinded Dyslexic, which is now Learning Ally. But your vision did clear up after that summer somewhat so that you were able to use magnification. What kind of magnification devices did you have in graduate school? Well, actually, when I first started graduate school, I wasn't aware of CCTVs, or maybe they weren't around yet. But I did get a pair of very thick glasses, and by looking really closely at a piece of paper or a book, and by using felt-tip markers, I was able to see what I wrote on a page. Interestingly enough, I probably couldn't see it that well, because although I could read it a couple of days after I wrote it, if I picked it up a month later, I couldn't read what was on the page. So some of it was just what was in my head, I guess. And part of the problem, and I've seen some of those papers that you wrote, your handwriting wasn't so good either. It never was. (laughs) Fortunately, about probably a year after starting graduate school, I found out about CCTVs. I had some vendors come in and give me some demonstrations of them, and I managed to purchase one. So for people who may not know the term CCTV, that's a closed-circuit television. Can you describe what those were like in the 1970s? Oh, at the time, they were behemoth devices. So there was a camera with a lens on it that was probably a foot or a foot and a half long that was mounted on a pedestal that looked down upon a book, and you had a book on a table that would slide back and forth. And then that signal from the camera was fed into a TV monitor where it blew up the print on the book or paper very large with lots of contrast. So I would hold my face pretty close to the screen even then and look at these letters that were several inches tall and white on black. And that pretty much got you through graduate school. Fortunately, you spent a lot longer in your professional career than you did as a graduate student, and you got a job at Xerox thanks in part to the hiring managers being willing to believe that anybody who could get through graduate school blind could probably get through a job blind. But your vision continued to degrade. So when you first started your professional career, you were still using a closed-circuit TV system. Well, that's right. And we didn't have quite the technology for dealing with computers and speech synthesizers back then. So it turned out I needed to use a computer terminal because I was a computer modeler at the time. And one of my colleagues designed this system whereby he had the camera from my reading system through a series of mirrors. It would look at the computer screen. And then he put the computer monitor on a series of slides so I could slide the monitor back and forth so the camera could look at various parts of the screen. And so it was kind of a kludgy system, but it worked. I mean, sometimes you don't need high technology to solve a problem. You just need to be a little bit clever. As I recall, this helpful coworker was also an amateur woodworker, and he built this system out of really nice walnut. It was a classy system, so it looked okay in my office, too. But anyways, as you point out, as my eyesight continued to degrade, you know, it often doesn't get better as you get older, the technologies improved. 
as your vision degraded and you pretty much transitioned from using low vision aids into blindness aids, what was the first useful tool that you found? Well, there were a couple that weren't so useful. The early speech synthesizers, I think I used a Votrax at the time. I tried to hook that up to my computer and that didn't work so well. But by the time we started having PC computers, people would make special boards that would fit inside your computer to do specific tasks. So, for example, I had a computer board, I think it was called the Vista system, that allowed me to magnify everything on the computer screen from the computer screen itself. So I could just scroll around with the mouse and on my screen would be a small portion of the display blown up wherever my mouse was. I also had another board that I put inside the computer for speaking. I think this was called a Keynote Gold system. And so anything that was on the computer screen, it would talk it back to me. It wasn't nearly as good as some of the speech synthesizers today, of course, but at least it was understandable. So between those two systems for enlarging the text and speaking the text, I was able to use a computer display. So as you may have heard in the past, in our household, Pete does the software and I do the hardware, and I got really good at opening cases of personal computers so that I could install this succession of specialty cards so that he could work with his computer. And much to my relief, eventually some of this hardware was replaced by software programs that did magnification and speech output. And they worked a lot better too, also to your relief. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, these days, People wouldn't think of opening up a computer to put in a specialty hardware board to do these functions. You can just download a program and have a program that will do the speech synthesis on your computer or a program that will magnify the screen, and it's just software. If it needs to change, they just update the software. You don't have to buy a whole new hardware board for your computer. So we've come a long way in that regard. Over the years, you also had a number of specialty devices that had the blindness aids built right in. Well, you know, in that regard, I was very fortunate to be working at a major corporation, Xerox, where money wasn't a problem. And anything I needed for me to do my job, they would provide for me or get for me. So, for example, you know, I had one of the very early refreshable Braille note-taking devices, the VersaBraille device. Now, when this came out, it had 20 cells. It was like an $8,000 device. It had a little cassette tape in there to record what you were writing as a note taker, and that was its memory at the time. But it was pretty expensive, but, but I found it useful. I would use it at work for taking short notes. I even used it from home with a 1200 baud modem at the time to log into our mainframe computer and write computer programs from home. So it was very enabling. Also at the time before they started selling software to do speech synthesis, I bought a laptop that was specially configured with some special hardware inside that had a speech synthesizer built into it. And so that was very useful because I didn't have to be at my desk to be able to access a computer. I could take this to meetings or if I traveled to um, seminars, I could take it with me. It was a great way of doing my work in a portable situation. And for reading printed documents, you got one of the very earliest Kurzweil reading machines. Well, again, working for Xerox was a real benefit. Xerox had bought 
Kurzweil systems in the early 80s. And at the time, they were trying to ramp up production of their reading machines. And so they were giving these away to libraries and other nonprofit organizations. And someone came to me one day and said, how would you like one of these things? So I said, okay, I'll try it out. And I had one of the first Kurzweil reading machines in my office uh, next to my desk. And at the time, that was like a $30,000 machine. Followed in succession by newer, more advanced models as they got developed. Right. One of them, they actually, in the firmware, they built into it a little program to say, good morning, Peter, when I turned it on. So that was kind of cute. Welcome to Peter's reading machine. (laughs) Right. It was so cute. But Xerox was always good about providing me the equipment and assistive devices that I needed. I mean, later on, when refreshable Braille displays became more ubiquitous, I actually had Xerox buy me an 80-cell Braille display, and you know that was like ten or $12,000 at the time. I also had them buy me a secondary 40-cell display. If one broke, they would buy me another one. So you know, money wasn't an issue, and so I always had the devices that I needed to do my job. And of course, as you mentioned, the speech synthesizers got a lot better. The programs for accessing your computer got a lot better. I started using JAWS in the early 90s, uh, back when Windows was at version 3.1. Well, those speech synthesizers kept getting so much better. We used to share a room for our studies, and we would sit back to back. And initially, it wasn't an issue. His speech synthesizer would be rattling on, and I couldn't understand a word. So it was just white noise to me. But once the speech synthesizer got so good that it sounded like a person talking across the room, that got really hard to ignore. And so eventually, we split up our studies and moved them across the house from each other. You also had a number of portable devices. Now, any of our younger listeners are going to think this is crazy, but back in the day, the computers weren't portable. So if you wanted to bring something with you to a meeting so you could take notes, or if you wanted to have a portable device where you could keep your calendar and a couple of phone numbers, you needed something special. Well, again, they had another great little device. It was a handheld device called a voice diary. And with this, you could make recordings. It had a calendar in there. It was specifically made for the visually impaired. I really made a lot of use out of that device. It was easy to take notes and scroll around. And for other ways of taking notes, of course, the old slate and stylus has always come in handy for short things, but you went through a series of Braille printers as well. Oh, I did. I remember the first Braille printer that I ordered at Xerox. It was an Everest Braille printer, and I took it out of the box and put it on a table in my office, and I printed out the demo page and Everybody came running from down the hall. They were wondering what was going on. This was a huge racket. They were very noisy, loud machines. And so we finally decided that we would hide this in a closet across the hall from me. And we ran a computer cable from my office up through the ceiling, through the corridors, and, and into the closet across the hall just to uh, keep the noise from annoying people. Well, and... Somebody soundproofed the closet. There was foam on all the walls. Yeah, yeah, we we did a lot to cut down the noise. Those were very noisy products. 
One of the other neat devices that I had back then, and I wish they would follow up on this technology now for making Braille, it was called a Howtech printer. It was a hot melt printer, which meant that it kind of melted a crayon and then spit this molten wax onto a piece of paper where it cooled and hardened. And what was neat about that is it didn't make any noise at all. It had a smell to it at the time, although that technology has improved since. And it didn't make the highest Braille in the world, but it was non-crushable and it was very readable and you could print it on plain paper. And this was actually a commercial printer that was made for sighted people, but someone happened to make a Braille font for it. At the time, you didn't load fonts by firmware into printers. You had a little font card, but it worked pretty well. But no one ever followed up on that technology for making Braille, unfortunately. So these days... The list of adaptive aids that you use is actually pretty short. What would you say the primary tools are that you use? Well, these days, now that I'm retired, I certainly still use my desktop computer quite a bit. And I have JAWS running on there. And I have a PacMate display hooked up to it because I still like to use Braille once in a while. And then, of course... You know, my iPhone. With my iPhone, I can do just about anything. I mean, I do email, surf the web. I manage the website for our radio show when we're on vacation from the phone. And, you know, all the other functions that a phone can do, including calling people. And maintaining your contacts and your calendar and being able to access the web and on and on and on. And instead of that huge $30,000 Kurzweil reading machine from 35 years ago, you've got a $100 app with which you can do a much better job of the same task. And that's the KNFB Reader app. And in fact, these days, Microsoft has put out a free program called Seeing AI, which will do many of the same functions. It'll read short snippets of text if you just wave the camera around, or if you take a picture of a document, it will convert it to text, just like the KNFB reader will, and do many other functions, including identifying products and even what's in a room. And thank you to the listeners who have suggested that we do an episode on the Seeing AI, and we are in discussions with the people at Microsoft to try to schedule an interview about that. And in addition to all of this technology, you also have some pretty low-tech devices that you use. You have your white cane. We just moved, as you've heard, no doubt. We've been putting little raised dots on stickers all over the house so that Pete can use the microwave and the refrigerator, which apparently these days a refrigerator does more than just keeping things cold even to get in the front door, which has a touchpad, we put little sticky raised dots. And I still use my slate and stylus occasionally. I used to write on little index cards when I was at Xerox to write notes for the slides I had when I was giving a presentation. I would just hold my Braille cards in my hand or behind my back, and I'd know what information was on the slides I was presenting. But I still do that occasionally for writing little notes to myself or putting numbers on the microwave with labeling tape, and I'll label it in Braille that way. And, of course, everything in our house talks. I have a talking watch. Oh, and we have a talking scale, but I'm not getting on it so you can hear it. And talking thermometers. There was less embarrassing. That's true. So we hope you've enjoyed hearing about the evolution of all of this technology 
that Pete's used over the years. But even as some of it has gotten very advanced and very capable, there's still a place for using some of these very low-tech solutions as well. Now for this week's final item, resources where you can find many of the aids we talked about, if they're still being made, ranging from toys and white canes to screen readers and braille displays. So before we get into that, one of the things I want to mention is that I think one of the big things that have changed over the years with technology is that a lot of these adaptive aids and technologies in the past, were custom-made for the visually impaired. In fact, it was usually custom hardware, and so it was very hard to change. These days, a lot of assistive technology is being built into commercial devices. So this makes it not only more available, but a lot less expensive because it isn't made just for the visually impaired. And I'm thinking of things like the iPhone, for example. VoiceOver is built into the iPhone, and, you know, Apple sells millions of those things, so they can be relatively less expensive than a special device of equivalent power just designed for the visually impaired. And similarly with TalkBack in the Android devices. And also VoiceOver on the Mac, Narrator on Windows computers. So look for these technologies in devices that are just ordinary devices. I mean, these talking watches I have and talking scales, talking thermometers, these are all kind of commercial devices available for anybody. So again, they're not specifically designed for the visually impaired. But if you want to make it a lot easier to find these things, you want to go to a source that specifically markets devices to people with vision loss, and or other disabilities. And so we've got a few companies who are our go-to companies every time Pete breaks a watch and needs a new one, or something happens to the talking scale, or maybe we need yet another game with Braille on it. And those are MaxiAids, LS and S Group, and Independent Living Aids. And for the higher tech devices like screen readers, magnifiers, etc., those are available from companies like VFO or Freedom Scientific and Humanware. And there are other companies too. In fact, if you look on our website, we have a link to a list of resources of all kinds that you might be interested in looking at. And although we didn't give the details here, we'll have links to the resources we just talked about in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. That's it for show number 1742. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about conditions and technology for the blind in Kenya. We'll speak with Paul Mugambi, who is a trainer and advocate for people with vision loss. If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net or call us at 585-210-8094. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. Browse the full archive of programs 
Find instructions for subscribing to the podcasts and much more at www.tiesonsuccess.net. You can also find us on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook and on audioboom.com at Eyes on Success or Twitter at underscore Eyes on Success. We hope you will join us again next week for more information and updates on products for accessible living. Thanks for listening to Eyes on Success and have a nice day.